Hey everyone, welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast and I'm your host, Chris Panetta. Uh, happy to be here today. As always, we're in downtown Salem. Well, I am. Our guest is on Zoom with me today and I'll introduce him here in a second. But uh, I always like to give the spiel of, of what we're all about and, and why we do this and, and what we care about here uh, at the Groundwork Leadership Institute. You know, we started this institute uh, a number of years ago. The goal was to raise the tide of leadership in our community, but it's really become a whole lot more uh, than that. It's so connected to everything we do philanthropic, philanthropically. And, and uh, you know, what we care about is, is transformational change here. So, but we know we don't control that. So our, our whole uh, mission and vision is to create the conditions for transformation to be possible. And a key part of that, in our opinion, is to develop uh, leaders and help leaders uh, see one another uh, as people and work together uh, to, to face the challenges in our community. So we get, we get really lost in that work and we, we love it. So that's why we're doing this. We started this podcast to, to just share thought, to hear from other people and hear other perspectives and share that with the world. And it's been going very well. We didn't anticipate it extending beyond our community, but we have thousands of downloads from all over the place. So it's really fun uh, how it's grown. So it's a blessing for me to be a part of this, but with that, I just want to get right into our guest, um, get right to our guest, uh, Seamus, and uh, Seamus and I met uh, when I was actually in college. Um, Seamus lived in Hawaii, where I went to school at BYU-Hawaii, and when I met him, he worked at uh, the Polynesian Cultural Center there, which is just an amazing place that he'll probably talk about, hope he does. Uh, it means a lot to me. That's where my parents met. Um, my parents met there and, and were married. Uh, you know, sometime after, but uh, back in the late 70s, that was the only place where where my parents probably would have ever met. Uh, my dad's from the Philippines, and my mom is from a small town in, in Utah, and they met at the Polynesian Culture Center uh, in the middle of uh, nowhere <laughs> in, in, on the island of Oahu. So a lot of history for my family there. Love the place. Um, I really loved getting to know uh, Seamus um, in some of the work that I did for the, for the peace building program, I was, I was a part of out there and working with the, the Polynesian cultural center, which we call the PCC for short. And we refer to that today, uh, the PCC and, and really admired and looked up to, to Seamus and his leadership and the stories that he, he shared with me, um, and the things that he was doing there and, and did, you know, for years after. Uh, so really excited to dive into this Seamus, um, Seamus, uh, from New Zealand and, has an uh, amazing uh, story to tell. So with that, I'm going to stop talking and let you introduce yourself, Seamus. Hey, thanks, Chris. Um, first of all, I just need to say, like, I, I go back to, uh, was it 2011, 2012, around that time where I was the manager of the New Zealand Village and we had Chad Ford come in and introduce us for the first time to the anatomy of peace and a lot of these Arbinger ideas that have really uh, shaped a lot of my life. But then um, part two of that story was that he was supposed to come back. Well, he told us he was coming back and he sends us the student to train us in the leadership pyramid, influence pyramid, however you want to, what name you want to call it. And that was Chris Panetta. And I want you to know that I've, that influenced me so much as a leader, learning that and learning it from you. Um, having Chad know his trust that he had in you to send you to us, these wild people in the islands, uh, to teach us a deeper um, 
a deeper look at how do we influence people and influence change. And so I'm grateful to be there and see you there, but now to see you here and all the work that you're doing out there in um, Salem, Oregon, and just grateful for the opportunity to be here, mate, and to see you again. I know you're doing great things. I've, I've heard of all the things you've been doing since you left BYU and really walking the talk and fulfilling the mission and the vision of the David O. McKay uh, Center uh, for International Peace Building. And so I thank you for the opportunity, mate, uh, to reconnect. Yeah, and uh, and I, I I want you to keep introducing yourself, but I got to respond that, that 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 work that I was, you know, entrusted to do with chat, uh, with specifically with the the Māori village um man it changed my life i i i reflect fondly upon the the things that i learned from from you and and Kim and and others there um you know that that have impacted you know how i how i see the world and and how i've um you know conducted myself as a leader and the things that i try to espouse in our community i even go so as far as is uh you know in our curriculum we have this section where we talk about deeply seeing and how that changes how we see people, you know, when we deeply see people, it changes to, to this element of love and, and care beyond, you know, understand, understanding someone's hopes, needs, and fears. It's they, I actually now start to have this love or this agape type of love that Chad talks about. And in that section, I actually tell the leaders about the hongi and, uh, and, uh, and we have a video I'll have to show you sometime. We have a video that we produced with me sharing why it's important to me and how, who I learned it from. But uh, we talk about the Hongi and the year one of our institute, I got to tell you this story because it's something I'll never forget. Year one of our leadership institute, um, we had our first group ever, which were all kind of very seasoned veteran level OG leaders in our community, executive directors of, you know, massive nonprofits and others. And it's just, you know, these powerful people in the room were sitting out at this coast this the coast of Oregon in this little room doing this training. We get to this section and I tell them about the Hongi. And I prefaced it with my experience there and and the also the 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 proverb that I learned, you know, from from you guys, the Heate Me Nuiote Ao, right? Hitangata, Hitangata, Hitangata. And and I think I've talked about that on other episodes, but uh so I preface it all with that. And then I tell them about the Hongi. And then Salam, I hope you meet one day. Um, I asked him, I said, Salam, will you do the hongi with me so I can show them what this looks like? And Salam stood up and Salam's not an emotional person. Salam's from uh, um, the Middle East. He's Palestinian. Um, and uh, he said that this kind of resonated with some of his culture as well. But he stood up mm -hmm. and he did the hongi with me. And again, I've never seen Salam get emotional, but he could not uh, contain um, how he felt and kind of broke down in tears. And the room just changed together, you know. And Salam just after that, he talked about what he felt when he did that with me. And I was just using this as a metaphor to say, I want you guys to metaphorically hungry with the community that you're a part of, the people that you lead. Mm. But they raised their hand, Seamus, and they said, can we do that with each other? And so here's all these people where it's totally out of their comfort zone, not culturally, it's not something culturally um, comfortable for them. But here's all these leaders in Salem, Oregon that stood up next to one another and started hung, doing the hongi with each other. And, ah, gosh, it was amazing. One of the most amazing experiences I've had. Um, and that's because of things that I learned from, from you and, and, and others from the village that, that uh, I'm so glad that I can share with people. 
um, because the essence behind it is what what impacted me and changed my life, and the fact that it that that is passed through, uh, you know, and I perhaps get to be a vessel to teach something that's so meaningful to others. Gosh, it gets me emotional. So I appreciate I appreciate you for teaching me those things and uh, you know welcoming me um, in that way. If I was with you, I'd I'd, I'd hung you with you, my, my brother. So I uh, appreciate it. And I, um, I've learned so much from our, our culture through my years of, of learning, but I, I miss Hongi right now. Probably in living in Utah, the only people that I've, I've I Hongi are my children. And they know when they greet dad that I want to Hongi them. And maybe part of it is the smell if they've been smoking or anything like that, but no, that's <laughs> not. And I <laughs> see what they've been into. But I, um, yeah, the symbolism in the, of connection with people through sharing the same pocket of air, sharing the same breath, um, and binding together not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, and to recognize that we all are created as well on the same, from the same deity. Um, our, our story of creation is that we came from the dirt of the land, um, and Tani Mahuta, the god of forests and all living things, the greatest son of the heavens, blew into the nostrils of our first parents. And when we hungi, we, we recreate that story and therefore connect us as human beings that we come from the same place, that we are the same, we are connected whether we like it or not, no matter where we're from in the world. Well, we see that. Um, that mana and people, um, the tapu, the sacredness of people, and the whole just encapsulates that and so much more. And I, I, I miss uh, the commonality of it back in New Zealand all the time, as well as uh, even in Hawaii, uh, meeting up with other Maori and other Polynesians to acknowledge them and our connection to one another. So yeah, awesome! It's great to hear what you're doing, Chris, and to see it and. Just a witness. That's so fulfilling to see when people start and then to see what they're doing now. Um, yeah, I'm just grateful to be part of this, watching your journey. Yeah, I had, so thankful for it. Well, I appreciate you, and I, I had such a high respect for for those elements of the culture that that uh, you guys taught me. And I remember one time I was talking with Kim, and uh, and uh, I can't remember exactly how the conversation came up, but I. I said, man, I wish I could, uh, you know, I wish I could share this with, with people. And I remember him telling me, he said, well, you know, share it with people in the right setting, you know, um, share the lessons you learn from this. Uh, and that's a, a great way to show respect to it. Cause I asked him, I said, I want to always respect this with a high regard and, and, and how do we, how can I share it with others? And that's what he told me. And so I really pick and choose the times where, where I can share something so meaningful. Um, uh, with others, and and I hope that it it uh, it does the 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 meaning and the symbolism and and the culture proud when 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 I do that, and because to me there's 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 very few other physical manifestations of deeply seeing another person than the hongi. I mean, it's you literally share the same breath, and you're in such a vulnerable place, placing your your foreheads and, and noses together. It's just an amazing. Amazing gesture. Uh, I can't think of anything else that shows people, "Hey, I see you, and you matter to me." So, yeah. Well, that was a fun. That was a fun uh, 
tangent, but keep going on with with <laughs> with, with uh, introducing yourself. Who you, you know okay. more about who you Let's, are and, and what you do and things of that nature. Um, yeah, so I originate from a, a small village on the banks of the Waiotaka River, uh, which is in the central North Island, close to a, a township of Turangi. Uh, I grew up typical Maori uh, rural community um, at a time where my, I guess my parents, um, my mum was as Maori from New Zealand. We grew up in a time where there was a lot of uh, suppression of culture and she didn't grow up learning the culture or wasn't allowed to speak her language in school uh, or in public. Uh, my father was an Irishman. He joined the British Army during the time of the Korean War. Um, from Cork uh, in Ireland and ended up in Australia and two worlds collided and the rest is history. Um, and they uh, worked as prison officers. So um, yeah, growing up in Tūrangi is rural New Zealand. You're just, how do I put this, Chris? Um, when you leave the cities and you go towards the country into the rural towns of New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, a lot more Māori and uh, the town I grew up in, there was quite a large percentage of unemployment, gangs. Uh, you have, um, wherever there's been colonization of an indigenous people, uh, oftentimes there's a lot of alcoholism and drugs. Um, uh, the past rate at school com- in comparison with Europeans was quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, only one, only one in, Ma- one in 10 Maori finish high school get all qualifications um, and we were a large percentage of the prison populations and in fact in my hometown growing up there were four prisons it was the main industry locking up people and I actually saw that well, the options you had for Tūrangi was you become a prison officer you um, join the army you work in the forestry or you go to prison. And by the time I'd finished high school, I had friends in all four categories. Um, so everything was a possibility. Uh, and, but I um, took a wild chance at um, going to university. Um, in my biological family, I have two families. It's typical of Māori as well. Biological family and the family that raised you. But in my biological family, I was the first person to go to university on both sides and for generations. And I ended up in, ended up in BYU, Hawaii. Um, what I find interesting interesting in my ideas at that time, I from being a I, I served a two year mission, and I had a lot of leadership responsibilities given over my peers for a large percentage of my mission experience, and I became I guess really excited about human development, human behaviour. I was grateful to have opportunities to help missionaries, fellow missionaries learn, develop, and to see them become leaders. And so I went to BYU Hawaii and I wanted to study organizational behavior, mm. organizational development. And it was a, at that time, it was a major. And um, 1994, in fact, in my short when I got to BYU Hawaii, Chad was there. And we, the school was small. We all, everyone knew who everybody was, but I never had any personal interaction with Chad Ford until I, we came back later in our adult lives. But um, the major I was in, it, it ended after one semester of me being there. 
And so I went into psychology because that's kind of where the major was as well. Yeah. Actually, I was a minor. I was a minor in the major of psychology. So I focused more on um, psychology um, because I was always interested in how people develop um, mm-hmm. and relationships and so forth. I ended up changing, though, after a year and a half at BYU, and I went to Pacific Island Studies because I, to be honest, I found it quite easy. Uh, as a Polynesian growing up in the, in the culture, around the culture, the ceremonies, um, the language, uh, I just gravitated to the, to this anthropology view, I yeah. guess, of what is culture. Mm-hmm. And so graduating from BYU Hawaii and Pacific Island Studies, I then continued some studies um, in Maori philosophy, and so I share that because you're probably wondering how do I end up in HR, and I ask myself the same question. <laughs> uh, I've been <laughs> I've been in HR for a long time now, uh, director of talent management at the PCC, Knowledge Cultural Centre. Now I'm, I work for DoTerra. Um, some people just look at DoTerra and you think, oh, it's a multi-level marketing company. He must be doing um, door sales. <laughs> uh, but no, I am a senior manager at this time of uh, leadership development. Terra have a campus in Pleasant Grove with 4,000 employees who help keep this company helping people, which is, which is uh, part of their vision and mission. I just wanted to say one thing, as you mentioned earlier about um, PCC, the Polynesian Cultural Centre, how important it is in your life, Chris, is a place where you, where your parents meet. It's also where I met my, uh, my sweetheart. The PCC has played a huge, huge part in my development mainly because I had some amazing leaders who didn't give up on me. Mm-hmm. I gave them every reason to, especially coming through as a student where it was just really a place to work and I just needed someone to pay for my tuition and a part of my scholarship and it was just a job. Um, and you talk about toxicity, the toxic uh, soil. I can tell you many stories where I was that poison. Um, but I had leaders who loved me and saw potential in me that I would develop into this potential that they saw. And so I'm forever grateful. I, I, I can name dozens of people who I tried to emulate. I've tried to live the lessons they gave me in all that I do today. Sorry, man, that's a long introduction, eh? This is good. <laughs> yeah, this is good. It's, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, no, this is good. And, and, uh, I appreciate you sharing and, and, you know, to that point of, of these people in our, in our lives. I think we've had, you know, a couple episodes where, where that's always come, come up of just the people that see, have seen our potential. And you've, you've mentioned somebody several times that uh, saw a lot of that in me, uh, you know, Chad Ford, who's been on our show a few times and, um, and you know, that's just a, a massive blessing to have people that can see potential because potential is, is is the future that isn't yet. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's, it's the reality that hasn't happened yet. And, and for somebody to look past, um, the inadequacies and, and the failures, um, of an individual and see the potential is a, is a true gift. And I'm certainly grateful for people that have done that, you know, in my life, as it sounds like you are as well. So, uh, thanks for that intro. That's, I think all of that is really going to add to what we can dive in today. Um, what we want to dive into today, um, and and I and I thought of you specifically 
because what I know about you. Um, and uh, I felt like you could really hit home this idea of, of culture change. Um, for obvious reasons, you know, that was part of your role at the, at the PCC. Um, that's probably the, some of the work that you're doing now at, at doTERRA, but you also have, uh, which I, I'm glad you brought up. There's this other perspective, this anthro, this anthropological sort of perspective of culture of, you know, of, a of, a a type of people and their culture. And then there's this organizational development culture. And what's the interplay between those two? Um, how are they related? And how has your your um, experience and knowledge of understanding just the culture of, of people, you know, of a group of people, this, yeah. this anthropology view impacted your view and what you do, you know, organizationally? So w- with that, to just tell us what you think about culture. I mean, what is culture to you? What are the different perspectives you have when you hear the term culture? Um, well, interesting. When I first was hired in the Polynesian Cultural Center out of the cultural presentations. I, I did over 15, 16 years in cultural presentations from a frontline dancer to a cultural ambassador. And cultural ambassadors are the people who, who tutor others, um, who the company would send on promotionals, who could talk about the culture, not just at a shallow surface level, but you know to go deep into that and then to be a manager um, and then the director of all the, of all the islands. And as a director of all the islands, I actually thought to myself, you know what, I'll, I've made it. This is, <laughs> this is, this is me and I'm going to be here forever. And I'm, I'm happy with it. I loved it. I love what I was doing. I had um, six island managers. So all the cultural specialists in the different islands in the PCC reporting to me and having a wonderful experience um, sharing culture with people. Then I go into HR, no experience at all. I get hired. I get asked to apply. I didn't want to apply. And then I get the job. And I remember going to the CEO, Alfred Grace, at the time, and I says to the president, um, what do you want me to do? And he says to me, Seamus, I need you to align our culture, align us. Right now we've got different kingdoms. And he wasn't just referring to the kingdom of Tonga. He was referring to what some companies would call silos. Yeah. That he felt he could see within the company. And I said, okay, um, who, who trains me? Uh, because I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And he goes, he says, he, all of his confidence in me was, you know, you've done what I've seen you do on the islands. I want you to do here in the whole company. And I go, right, but who can I learn from? Who is my, going to become my mentor? And of course, he introduced me, and I already knew Uncle John Moena, who'd been a vice president of HR for years and a, another great mentor of mine. Um, taught me so much. But then he said, in his view, there were two organizations that he felt really worked. And one of them was the church that he belonged to and I belonged to as well. And the other one was Disney. He says, I want you to go find out what they do. And he literally sent me to Mickey Mouse. So I went to the Disney Institute for three days uh, in California and sat there for eight hours a day learning about Disney and how they, how they do things. Day one, I never forget the slide that came up. Had a picture of Walt Disney, Uncle Walt. I call him now because he's taught me so much. Um, had a photo of Uncle Walt, and it said that all organisations have culture, either by design or default. Mm. The greatest threat to any organisation will not come from a frontal assault on your values, but the insidious decline of culture. 
I've never forgotten that quote. I don't even need to look at it. I, I know it's it's embedded in my brain because it etched itself in that day because I literally thought, what's Walt Disney doing talking about culture? He doesn't know culture. Yeah. Heck, I'm from the Polynesian Cultural Center. I've studied from Massey University in, in BYU, Hawaii, and I know culture. What's he talking about? And then I learned that culture was a set of values, set of beliefs, uh, similar to how we look at it in our own personal identity cultures, um, set of behaviors that you have in a company, either by design or default. Default meaning if you do not design it, if you do not overmanage your culture, people will make up their own. Yeah. Uh, and so I uh, learned that corporate culture, that first wave there. In my worldview, in culture, and I've heard it often spoken of in, in our circles of um, our friends that we talk about this lens. I look at culture as an onion, but I'm a little, little strange. But on the outside of this cultural onion, are all of the protocols, behaviors, practices, things like the hongi are on the outside, things that you are manifested, um, how you treat people, how you speak to them is on the outside of the onion. If you peel that onion back to the inner layer, you'll find a set of values that are taught from a young age. It's passed on from generation to generation. And if you take that values, that layer of values away, underneath that you're going to find a a set of beliefs. Um, again, it's it's in the culture and how depending on how old your culture is, there's beliefs about other groups of people. There's beliefs about the world we live in, mm-hmm. um, the ocean. Uh, I often would ask my students when I come into my class uh, at BYU Hawaii, how do you see the ocean? Does it separate us or connect us? As Hawaii separated from California by the ocean or is it, is it connected? And so all of these beliefs of how we we see things um, or how we, what we learn from our, our families, if you take that layer away and you get to the core of this cultural onion, it literally is how we see. And we're not talking about, as you and I know, our eyes. It's how you see literally with your soul, how you see something, how you see a person, how you see your place you live, how you see the people around you dictates what you believe about them, which therefore controls the values and therefore influences um, your behaviors. So there is a, you can see similarities there. There's different levels um, of when you look at a corporate culture compared to a, um, a culture that we, we've grown up with and grown up in, become a part of. Um, in my little world, my little bubble, I guess what I've been doing for the last almost 18 years now um, is just trying to influence how people see. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about the Polynesian Cultural Center, um, I, 2015, we started to try and work on how the company sees things and seeing it through the lens because that's what culture literally at the Cultural Center is defined as the lens through which we see the world, the lens through which we see others. That's more cultures. Yeah. And I hope I answered your question, Chris. No, you did. Uh, more, you know, yeah. you, you answered it uh, um, more than enough. That was amazing. And, and just to give context, you know, to a place like the PCC, um, I mean, the amount of people that it influences in a short amount of time is really vast. I mean, 
if you have some general numbers, I'd be willing to hear, I'd love to for you to share because you have full-time employees there, but then you also have student employees that come and go because they're students at BYU yeah. Hawaii. And then you have the guests that come through because it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's in the, what would you say? Entertainment in entertainment uh, industry. I don't know where it exactly falls, but it's a, it's a tourist attraction. So you're influencing a lot of people in shorts amount of time. Do you have any sort of data on that? Like how many students come through yeah. in a given year and guests come through in a given year? It's, it's probably really, really high. Yeah. And so yeah, still, still the number one attraction has been for, for decades, obviously started in 1963. Uh, Pre-COVID, I'll go from pre-COVID numbers, which were the general numbers, 1,400 employees, uh, 800 to 900 of which are students. And as you mentioned, turnover. I mean, I've had people come in and ask me, uh, how do you guys do this? We have massive turnovers. Every semester there's a graduation Mm -hmm. and we lose hundreds of employees. And then we gain hundreds of new ones that have to be now onboarded and trained and brought into the culture and into their functions. Um, you have about, on average, if we just make it, have an average of know, 300 part-time employees and 250 full-time employees, um, how the company was originally functioning before pre-COVID. Um, average year nowadays of the marketplace, a uh, little over a million people. Um, come to the Polynesian Cultural Center a year. Um, we, yeah, like I said, we've, we've, we've become, listen to me, I'm still saying we, like I still work there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I left there six months ago, but I still feel, even though I've left the Polynesian Cultural Center, that it, it'll never uh, leave me. Um, so, yes, uh, 1963 uh, was our opening time. and I think over these years, I think the number I've heard is somewhere around 40,000 students, 30 to 40,000 students have paid for their schooling through the working inside the doors of the Polish Cultural Center. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Um, and the influence is, is, is massive. I mean, I grew up hearing stories about the PCC from my parents. Um, didn't get to go there and experience it till I was maybe 12 ish years old. Um, but, uh, the, and the reason why I bring that up is because that when you're talking about influence and what influences everything, <laughs> which you got to the, the core of the onion being the, how we see others, um, to be in a place that's that dynamic and that has that many people coming through it. Um, that's, that's more important, uh, than ever. Um, and, and uh, many of us that, that are in organizations, that's not the same dynamic, right? There's some that we see that in education and other things, but most of us, if we're not in the hospitality, you know, entertainment business, we're working with the same people for a long time and it's the same organization and, and it's still hard to create a strong culture. So I think it's amazing um, when you put culture in that context and, and in the environment, I mean, you had to do things and figure something out there that very, I think very few people in the world have to figure out. And Maybe people like Disney with all the companies they own, um, but Disney also recruits the best of the best all over the world. You you got students from from small villages, and you got what you yeah. got, and you still had to make it into this amazing experience where those those students were then responsible for a feeling that people felt when they walked through those doors of the PCC, and a feeling that 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 would be something they'll never forget. I still remember my favorite village. I, 
maybe this is a coincidence or not, when I was 12, was the Māori village. And uh, I remember going there and they had the, the little tattoos that you can put on. I thought that was the best thing ever. Um, but I still remember the, I didn't know at the time, but the students that were helping me do that um, and uh, the amount of investment they, they gave to me when I was there. Um, I'll never forget, you know, uh, it was a feeling. I felt like I was, I was there and that these people were, were, you know, that they, these students, I didn't know they were students, but I'm confident they were looking back. It was just a, an amazing feeling. So they're responsible for that. And that's a massive responsibility. You know, working, working there when I first got there um, and realizing what it was. So the Polynesian Cultural Center is defined as a museum. It's a, it's a living museum. You get a regular museum and you see things that are stuffed and, and artifacts and uh, things that don't move. And now we were, the cultural center was is categorized as a museum, but it's living, where we take you back in time to how would you be treated if you went to a traditional Māori village pre-contact? And although we're not speaking the language, um, because everyone's speaking English, there's, uh, there's values in our culture like manaki. And manaki is literally to, we can make it look at it many ways. So one way I love looking at it is that the word is two parts, mana. And mana is basically the spiritual essence of, it's in everything. It's in the land. It's transmitted from our creator through our ancestors. It's in the people and the places. It's um, it's of spiritual power. It's um, this prestige that everybody carries because of who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And key is to fill, manaki. In other words, to lift someone's mana. How do you do that? Service. Help them. And um, I love the, the Samoan proverb, um, I, sh- I share that all the time. I'm not Samoan, but what it literally means is that the road to leadership is through service. Mm. And so when you go into a, if you go to Samoa or into any Samoan family, you'll see young men serving their parents, serving their sisters, serving the guests to the point of um, going without, but to serve them. And that's the road to leadership in the, in, in the islands. Is how You're not measured by your possessions in the islands because we didn't have any. Uh, Polynesians have a, we have a very unique lens because of the small islands in the middle of the ocean, literally, um, and you know, sometimes people talk about the scarcity of resources and that creates a fear. Well, for Polynesians, that perhaps may see what, what, what would have been seen as scarcity, um, we saw as an abundance Yeah, because we knew we were all sharing. Everybody was sharing. One person succeeds, we're all going to celebrate. Just the same as if someone fails, we all fail yeah. as a family. And so it was my responsibility to be the best at whatever I was to make sure that my family had um, food, shelter, warmth. Um, when Captain Cook arrived uh, in 1769 in the Pacific, what he recorded in words was that we had a subsistence economy. Um, we were living day to day. But actually what he was describing was a surplus economy. Um, when he got to Hawaii, for example, and it was during Makahiki, the harvest, and they loaded him with so much supplies, um, what he didn't realize is that we had thousands of acres 
of food growing. We had uh, fish ponds that held thousands of fish and protein. And we were ready for any tsunami, any natural disaster, any hurricane, and any guest, because guests deserve our very best. Um, again, there's a road to leadership. There's a road to, in other words, of recognition. And it's through serving people. So the PCC, I get there, I go to work, and I just think to myself, this is actually a job. <laughs> I get to just be myself. And we just tell people about our culture. And I just thought, well, it never felt like work. Um, it always felt like this is, you know, been an amazing opportunity and a blessing to go to school this way. Um, and then as the years went on, as I mentioned earlier, I fall into the trap of, you know, maybe a little bit of lacking of self-confidence. Uh, and therefore, then it brings those elements of fear in. And I, I, I became part of a poison um, in my own in my work areas. So anyway, so yeah, loved uh, the lessons that I learned at the cultural centre, especially um, uh, serving other people, looking after them the best that we can. It's, that's the true Polynesian culture, you know, and one, one, one other thing, Chris, I was just thinking about was people often come there and they're amazed that there's countries that live and work together at the cultural center in peace. Yeah. That's really one of the main messages is just look at us here. Yeah, we're all brown. Yeah, we're all running around in grass skirts and bare, and bare feet, but we literally come from different countries in the world. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a love and a respect for each other. Um, and we understand the connection to each other, which is the ocean. Yeah. And that's part of the mission of the PCC. At the dedication of the cultural center, Hubie Brown, who dedicated that, um, that special place, he said that if all the nations of the world can feel the spirit of the nations of Polynesia, then the world would have peace. Yeah. And so there's no, we, we know that as uh, individuals, as students, then that's part of what we're trying to do, help people feel like, you're not only coming here to visit and see us, but we want you to become a part of us. Yeah. And part of our part of our family, our Hana. Yeah. Amen. Sorry, man, I'm going on. No, no, that's <laughs> good. This is all good stuff. Amen to that. I yeah. I uh I agree with uh with what Hubie Brown said there is is uh the world would find peace. Um and when you were talking I thought of uh something that I've learned working for a, a philanthropist. Uh it's just an amazing person and, and does so much in our community. But I think it relates, you know, because we can do so much more with one another than we can alone. Um, and uh, what I've learned here is, uh, and there's, this is probably a quote somebody said, I don't know who said it, but um, it's really come to bear for me, but which is, you know, you can, you make a living by what you get in life, right? But you make a life by what you give. And, uh, and I love that because that was the sentiment that you're talking about is the life that's made is by giving and sharing um, and, and being together. Uh, and while not every culture in the world can relate exactly to that the way that perhaps the Polynesian people do, um, the essence behind it uh, is, the, is, this, is the same. Um, you know, we can do a lot more with one another uh, than we can alone. Uh, so... Yeah, I wanted to ask those details about the PCC because um, I just think it's amazing the influence culturally that it has on so many different people. But uh, going back to what you said about culture, that onion, I love that analogy. 
you know, um, because you kind of answered to, to my questions. I asked, you know, what is culture? Why is it important? You really hit both of those really well. And the only thing I'd add, you know, in our framework, the way we talk about culture, which a lot of our listeners know, and I told you before we started recording, you know, we refer to that as the manifestation of the soil, which is the people. And I love what you said that um, uh, culture is either by design or by default. And we talk, we talk about that as well. We talk about culture um, right in our curriculum, right at the beginning. And uh, we have what's, what we call the culture cube. That's <laughs> a tool that we, we created. And I came across some of this um, literature in my PhD and um, that I'm in right now. And uh, uh, PhD in psychology, specifically IO psychology and industrial organizational psychology. And so I get to dive into this literature all the time around organizational culture and development and things of that nature. And and, uh, you know, I came across these elements of culture that I thought were so fascinating. And we just put it into this cube. We call it the culture cube. But there's four parts. The first, the first part that I'll, I'll talk about is, is the espoused values and norms. You know, it's what, it's what people claim is important to them. You know, like these are our espoused value and norms. We value honesty, integrity, trust, respect, things, things, things like that. Uh, so that's, that's the espoused. And a lot of times when we say, hey, what's, your, what's the culture of your organization? That's what you list off. <laughs> it's on the wall. Uh, you know? But then there's the enacted values and norms, which is the reality. It's how it actually is. So, uh, which is, there's usually a dynamic there. There's usually a discrepancy between the espoused and the enacted. There's, it's not always the way we say it is. Uh, people aren't always the most honest or people aren't always you know, the most trusting or respectful. And so understanding that gap the way we we talk about is super important because both of them make up your culture, but you got to understand where the gap is. And then we have two other pieces to it. One we call artifacts, which is basically the physical manifestations of culture, an office layout, address code, you know, policies, the way we celebrate, um, you know, wins or or even birthdays. I mean, things like that. That's all part of culture as well. And then the the other underlying piece uh, is assumptions. Um, and those are kind of the unseen, often taken for granted things about um, an organization. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, part of our organization, we're not a we're not a religious entity, but our owners, the philanthropists and his son, they're very religious people, um, very devout, um, God-fearing people. And so it's a part of the culture here uh, as a team because they talk about it and everybody talks about it. We don't ever force that on other people, but internally, everyone knows it's a and we have varying different religions here, but we just know that, you know, God is an important piece. So an assumption would be that would be that, that we just know that, you know, we don't even have to think about it. Sometimes we take it for granted, but it's so important. And it would be thrown off if one day one of our owners just showed up and said, you know, I'm atheist. <laughs> be like, what? No. I mean, it would throw off the whole culture here. So that's what assumptions are. And those, those espoused values and norms, the ones that we claim to have and those artifacts, leaders can change those, you know, not easily, but they can change them. Like we can, we can re-strategize and write up some new values and norms that we want to believe in. We can change maybe the office layout. We can change the policies and dress code, but those bottom ones that we say are in the soil, those deeper ones of how it actually is, the enacted, that's the deep layer of that onion. It's how people actually see one another. It's how they actually care about the purpose of an organization and those assumptions, leaders can't change those. All they can do is influence them um, because people have to change those together. That idea of oneness, um, uh, that, that, that the idea of people coming together, uh, all of that is what makes up 
up culture. And so I, I saw a lot of alignment between how we talk about it, you know, in our institute and, and everything that you said and why it's so important. It's foundational, I, I would say. It, it dictates, you know, um, everything that an organization becomes and, and does. Uh, so th- thanks for answering that. Uh, you know, a couple of other elements here I'm really interested in in hearing your perspective on. You can respond to anything I said for sure, but but who's who's involved? You, you already addressed this, but who's involved in creating culture and then who's involved in changing it? I think that's a really simple answer everyone but i want you to i want you to to expound on it so it's interesting like i got hired here at doTERRA because of the experience that i had at the cultural center working on corporate culture um my role right now i i this just today i just picked up we we have a new handbook that we're starting on similar to what we did at the cultural center what i did there um what i was a part of uh really there has to be vision uh, of what you want to achieve. Something about Alfred Grace I'll just share is that when he asked me, could you, you know, we need to align our, 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 our kingdoms into one and get back to what we really are, you're talking about a leader who was the leader of the number one attraction, one of the, perhaps the number one cultural theme park in the world. Mm-hmm. We're number one already, how we've, how we've set up. But he said, you know, we, good is the enemy of great. We can still be better. And I want to focus on our culture. One thing that the culture, as we know, as you see, that's, we're basically talking about mindset. And if we want a new, new target, new results, and he wanted new results, even though how do you beat number one? Yeah. How do you beat a 90% um, guest satisfaction rating, uh, 80% uh, employee satisfaction of a, that many employees? You know, some companies are happy with 60. They're happy with 50 mm-hmm. that, are have, that are giving you a 9 or 10. We were at 80% 9 or 10 um, employee satisfaction. And here comes a leader who says, the biggest room in the cultural center is the room for improvement. And we're going to start with our mindset. And so 2015, we put together a handbook. We started with, as you know, you, you're in many of those meetings designing um, a new lens for everyone to start looking through through training modules. Mm-hmm. And we put together six training modules. And I'd like to say that after we put those six training modules together and put them out, we did one a month, you know, for six months, that everything changed. Uh, that's not the case. In fact, two years later, the statistics that we had was only 40% of the company were actually... Um, putting those values to action, as you're talking about. You put the values in the, on the wall, you can put them in your handbook, you can put them on stickers on the back of your ID cards, you can do all of that, but how do you activate it? Mm-hmm. And where it becomes part of people's behavior. So two years later, you know, we're still at about 40% of the company doing the behavior, so we went to revisit again. Yeah. What is the mindset? How do we do that? And you know, long story short of it, uh, by 2017, which is two years later, two and a half years later, actually, we ended up um, with a 90% the employees, our leadership had bought in. So basically, you had the leadership committee, which was the president's council, under them the directors and under them the managers. So we were trying to convert them. That This is the mindset. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we're doing that from the top. We went to the frontline workers and we were 
teaching these modules out to everybody. Yeah. But again, it's great to have these modules, but then what's the reality? Is my manager going to practice it? Yeah. Case in point, if you see a person as a person and you see their potential, um, most Fortune 500 companies, they have a practice of meeting one-on-one. It could be monthly, it could be every two weeks, it could be once a week. Um, and if you see that as the person, like I mentioned earlier, as a person, then it would make sense that I do want to develop them and and there's a proven track record if I can meet with them one-on-one. Yeah. Well, we, we wanted to institute that. We didn't have that as part of our culture. That was something we wanted to institute, that behavior. And we, after two years, like I said, um, no, sorry, a year and a half, we only had 40%. But after two and a half years, it, we were at 90%. It was happening. Um, and things started really improving throughout the whole spectrum of the cultural center. There were some other changes that were taking place. And I'm just going to say that because we had a new CFO come in um, with a different mindset as well. President's Council dramatically changed under, under um, Alfred Grace and people who were retiring and new people were coming in and so forth. But long story short, we believed it would take seven years to change our culture. And the results of that was we would have better, higher employee satisfaction, greater guest um, enjoyment, and higher financial results as well. 2017, at the end of that, so it ended up being three years. 2018 uh, was the first time we actually, the Polish Cultural Center in 55 years made a profit. And there's other elements to that sales, marketing, finance, everything. But we all recognized that um, the culture had changed and people were more conscious of their impact on other people mm. and their impact on the end result as well. Yeah. And then we went three years, we were three years of actually making a profit and then COVID hit. But luckily for us, those three years kept the PCC open. When all the other companies were shutting down and letting people go, we kept yeah. everybody on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was some of the fruit that you're talking about. Yeah. Some of the fruit that came out uh, of changing or focusing on the mindset. Um, we're trying to do the same thing here at doTERRA. Actually, next week, the 22nd, is a town hall where the, our new CEO and our new president are going to introduce these values. And then we're going to start the ball rolling again with corporate trainings um, and focusing on mindset, believing that the behavior will follow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But it's the thing of, one thing I want to share about doTERRA is that you have, a, I've found the same experience. I found the cultural center where you have leaders who have a vision of helping people, of helping the world. You know, I think doTERRA is, to me, is more humanitarian than essential oils. They, they, they help all around the world, third world countries um, yeah. that they do. But in right now, they're number one. You know, you've got a two, three billion dollar company um, who's trying to improve. And so what are they doing? They're going to focus on how we see things. All of our values, I'll just share this. Actually, our company doesn't even know this sort of shame with you right now. All of our values, you know, at PCC, we, we use the word see. See uh-huh. ancestors. Yeah. See the Polynesian Cultural Center. See um, aloha. Believing that you see turns to beliefs, turns to values and our behaviors. Um, doTERRA, we, our, our group, our committee, um, with the leadership, the word is be. Mm. Uh, be pure. Be the legacy. Knowing that 
doing something is enough. You actually have to internalize it and be it, uh, which is my everything that we've tried to design is around the mindset first and knowing that the behaviors will follow afterwards. So it's been an awesome journey for these last six months, long way to go. Seven years, right? Seven years takes to change a culture. Um, and we've got a company that's very successful, just wanting to improve. So we're going to focus on culture. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, I, you know, I said earlier that I think culture is, is everything. Um, it's a, it's so important, but it's so challenging because it doesn't happen quickly. (laughs) You know, um, it's a slow to fast model. Uh, you can't, you can't change, you know, we use the analogy in our, in our, in our Institute, like I shared with you, soil seeds and weeds, but specifically when we're talking about producing the sort of fruit that we want and identifying the right seed. Oftentimes what organizations do is they want a certain outcome. And so it's, com- it's comparable to saying, hey, we want an apple. Like that's what we want. And so what do I do as a leader? Well, I go to the grocery store and I buy an apple <laughs> and I bring it back. I buy a whole bag of apples. So everybody has the apples. Like, look, we did it. Um, but what I missed out on in doing that was on this cultural shift. So I might've produced the mm. outcome quickly, but I, I miss out on what it actually means to plant the seed and the whole organization getting that seed to be rooted into the soil and then nurturing it, growing it to produce our own apple tree. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and it's more sustainable. It takes longer, but it's way more sustainable because then we don't have to keep going to the store to buy apples. We, we've produced our own. And the buy-in and the, the unity and togetherness it can create um, by nurturing and growing that seed is, is, un, is unmatched. Um, doesn't mean that conflict and weeds aren't going to pop up, but I think that's, that's an important piece of, of culture that, that anybody really needs yeah. to understand. It's going to be, have, it's going to have conflict and, and that's, uh, it's a matter of what we do with it. So I, I love, yeah. I, I love what you're sharing. Yeah. I, uh, one of the things that I'm grateful for in the last two organizations, and they've both been successful. They're both accolades, the number one prizes all over the, all over the show. Um, there's both organizations that have been a part of, part of understand that their product and they think of doTERRA and the, the vast amount of products that doTERRA puts out mm-hmm. of essential oils um, the product at the Polynesian Cultural Center of these um, amazing performances and meals and these experiences that we're hands on experiences and engaging with other people these products that we have both organizations understand that that really isn't their product and their product is their people yeah you, you can't have the quality and the purity of these oils and the impact that it's having on people's lives without the people who are here behind the scenes, the, those who are in the co-impact sourcing, um, growing the plants, uh, harvesting it, you know, and distilling the, the plants to get the oils and so forth and manufacturing and then the, all the people who work here on campus. And so there's a huge emphasis on how do we look after our people? How do we help them know that they're valued? How do we help them know that they um, are important to the overall outcome and everything that they're doing has an impact specifically on the people around them, which ultimately then will go down to these um, outer layers of the onion, you could say, that everyone sees um, around the world. So I'm grateful for that, that the leaders that I've been around have seen that vision of your the engine inside this beautiful car the people. Yeah. So focus on them. 
help them. Yeah, this is, I love it. It's spot on. And, and, uh, you, you answered, you know, that question and, and my other question I had, you know, of who's involved, obviously everyone is involved in it, but it starts with leadership. And that's, that's our approach in our community is if we want to see transformational change happen, which is another way of saying cultural change, uh, uh, it's got to start with leaders and, um, and leaders have to have to make that change first. Leaders have to see how they're part of the problem. And we, we talk about accountability a lot in our framework. Um, but just as deeply seeing changes the way we see others, it also changes the way we see accountability, which is which we call mm-hmm. deep accountability, which is basically I'm gonna change first, even when everybody else is are the ones that need to. <laughs> I'm gonna find a way to be the one that changes first. It's easy to be the one to change first when I clearly have something that I can change you know, when I'm clearly part of the problem, but there's, there's a lot of instances where it's going to be so hard for somebody to see how they need to be the one to change this first. Maybe they've done it over and over again. I've already tried. I've already done this. I've already done that. Um, but deep accountability pushes us to, to change even when and we're in the face of, of others clearly being the ones that need to. Um, and so, you know, you all, you address that, you address who's involved, but you also addressed the, the length, you know, the time that goes into it. Um, and there's costs associated with it, not just financial costs, but it's time and energy. You know, when we talk about nourishing a seed in our, in our curriculum, we, we talk about it in contrast with neglect. We either nourish or neglect our seeds. Um, and usually when we're neglecting them, it's because we're nourishing the weeds. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but two key elements of nourishing seeds are, we call it water and nutrients, which that means basically attention and resources, and it takes it. It's going to take attention and resources to to change culture. Uh, you can't change it with a a really catchy phrase or some really profound values. They gotta. It comes down to what people do, and where we have gone with our curriculum, um, uh, that was influenced a lot by Arbinger's work. But we've really just we, in our opinion, we've tried to go a lot deeper with it. Um, to talking about going back to its roots of of Martin Buber and I and I thou, and we emphasize this space between those two. That hyphen between I it or I thou is so important. You know, uh, we got to understand ourselves, and, I, and we have to understand the I really well. You know, who are we? What do we really care about? Um, what are our fears? What do we suffer with? What do we go through? We have to understand the other. You know, who are others? What do they go through? What do they suffer, et cetera? I see them as people. But we also have to understand that space between. Because too often, you know, if I can't sit in a room, if you, I don't know if you've ever read Martin Buber, uh, his stuff, but his book, you know, I and Thou is amazing. And I'm in the middle of it right now. But you can't, I can't sit in a room by myself and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see Seamus as a person and then think about your humanity. And I might have some really good stuff that I'm thinking about of your humanity. Seeing people happens when I'm with you. It's that space between. That's the magic. And I can't control it. I can't just ride into existence. I'm going to see someone as a person. It has to, it's this, Jim Farrell calls it this leap that has to happen. We have to make this leap towards transformation, this leap towards an I thou state, uh, which just, you can't, it's not a transaction. So you can't plan it to be a transaction. And we try, I mean, we try, our framework does the same thing. We try to make these structures that say, this is how we're going to see people as people. But 
those are just conditions to help people get there on their own, but they got to make the leap. Um, Buber yeah. talks a lot about how, how hard it is to actually be in an I thou state and how it's transcendent. He actually says in his book, he says that I it, you know, which we would say is, ob, you know, seeing others as objects. He, he says it's more than that, but he says that, that I it is what makes us think of time and space to be something that that's a reality. Time and space, structure and order, that's all from an I it mentality. I thou doesn't need any of that. You're just in the moment and you're real and, it ma- and it's transformative. And so we create these systems and structures to help people get there. Um, but in reality, when we're truly seeing others as people and we're in this I thou state, it's a, trans- it's, it's a transcendent moment and, and time and space no longer really matters. Um, right. Uh, in, the, in, the Pacific, in the Pacific, that hyphen you could say is called bar. Right, bar is the space between people, <laughs> and so in the in the islands of Tonga, the kingdom of Tonga, they have a very uh, a principle of tauhi bar, and tauhi, tauhi is to nourish, to care for, to look out that I am responsible for you, and you are responsible for me, and if this I thou relationship we're talking about in the islands of Tonga is valele meaning that I see you, you're important to me. And on the opposite, the I, it is Vakovi, um, where you are not important to me. You, you don't matter. And we have, and I love how in the, in the Tongan culture and in the Samoan culture, it's there as well, same, same uh, idea that, you know, you're in a room with somebody and when the space, it's not really my relationship between you and I, they see it as there's something wrong with the space between us. Mm-hmm. And I need to fix that. I need to look after that. And I never forget um, being in my office, walking into my office and having an employee sitting there. And as I walked in, this employee stood up and closed the door. Hmm. And I thought, oh, here we go. This is something's interesting happening here. And I said, hey, how, how are you doing? And can I help with anything? And this employee said to me, uh, I've come to see you today because I have my coffee with you. And I wanted to almost leap out of my chair, you know, um, in excitement because I knew that this person had come to Tauhiva with me. Sadly, it wasn't me doing it. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't take the leap. Um, but this person came in and we, Tauhiva, we took care of the space between us. I mean, you're sitting in those rooms and there's people who who leave and it's just you and somebody else and the air gets real thin and, and, and or thick. You either way you look at it and quiet, that's Varkovi and this person had recognized it between us and wanted to know how we could fix it. And so I, why I share that, Chris, is that there's, a, there's an obligation in leadership as you design culture to find a way that people own it. Mm-hmm. And the reality is what we're talking about is in every culture. So at the PCC, we use the values of the Pacific. Yeah. And although we had, we had 70 different nationalities from around the world, not all from the mainland America who have genealogy back to a different country. I mean, we had 70 different countries represented yeah. uh, at, at the PCC. But there was also an understanding that they came to Hawaii for this experience and mm-hmm. an appreciation of culture um, in Hawaii. But we would always talk about what is, what, what do you call malama? 
and we use this malama, which is to cherish, to care for, to brighten this, um, that we have this kuliana, this responsibility, which is also a privilege and a blessing to look after the cultural center. What do you call it? Because they just have different names for the same principles of success. So we took all of those so that there's an ownership because if there isn't ownership, you're never going to get to where you want to go. Absolutely. How do you get people to own, to own the mindset? So here in, the, here in doTERRA, for example, we have got multiple people from multiple different walks of life, different countries and cultures, and in the middle of Utah Valley, what do we do um, to, what's the, what unifies us? Well, my idea, my view is, is that what unifies everybody here is the oil. But if I take wintergreen for, as an example, as an oil, where does it come from? Nepal. How do the people of Nepal greet people? They say namaste. What does namaste mean? I see God in you. And so I'm inviting that one way to get ownership is people who work with doTERRA have their own testimonies of the oils and what they do. But what about the culture that it comes from? It's something that can unify us. Um, the Iliahi or the Hawaiian sandalwood mm-hmm. uh, comes from the big island of, of Hawaii and there's valleys in Hawaii of Aloha um, where I'm literally asking myself, how do I bless your life? What can I do to help you on your life's journey to bring you back into the presence um, of Ha? Where Ha was given um, Manuka from New Zealand, Eucalyptus from Australia. And what we're already defining as we discuss this with people here in the United States, um, we have many Native Americans who work at doTERRA and um, Arbovite, which is uh, cedar wood that the Native Americans, especially on the West Coast, use to carve totem poles out of and their canoes and their homes. But it's also seen as the tree of life and it purifies and is used for cleansing and as we talk about, let's not just use the oil, but let's use this value as part of our company culture. Can you see how it would help us with our interactions with each other? This hyphen between us, that we are I and thou, you're sacred to me and I'm sacred to you. Um, and once we have the I, you know, that this buy-in that comes through ownership, then the stickability, I guess you could say, like you say, seven years is a long time, a lot of resources and there's so many temptations to say, oh, it's not working. Let's change. And we do it all the time. We see all companies, oh, we'll try this. Let's read this book together yeah. and see how it works. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it didn't work. Let's, let's read this book. Yeah. Shotgun. But how do we, we just... How do, so we, we, and we're trying right now. We, and we don't, I'm not saying we have the, the right answer right now. The right, we won't actually know. Come back and see me in a couple of years. <laughs> but, well, that's where we're starting. Well, it sounds like you're really onto something that can be really impactful. I, 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 I am genuinely interested in, in seeing how, how it goes, and it'd be fun to just have you even come out and, and visit our, our, uh, our institute sometime and share some of this with, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with our leaders when we talk about culture, when we talk about, um, you know, change. I think that you could really connect with a lot of our leaders, and we'll have to talk about that sometime. But, uh. We yeah. gotta, we gotta wrap up. Unfortunately, um, I'm just been lost in this conversation. So this has been really fun. Uh, but I, I, you know, with, to that point, I agree with you that owning the culture is, is, um, imperative and, uh, it's seeing what's already there in a, in a lot of ways, you know, it's seeing what's already there 
um, the good and the bad and, and owning it because that's uh, owning the culture. And that's happens, I believe, in the space between. Um, in the Va, like you said, it, it happens in that hyphen. Um, and I think that's that was Martin Buber's greatest discovery was the hyphen, um, how important the hyphen is. Because um, the space between us and others is is what matters at the end of the day. It's what matters at the end of the day. The most important thing in this office is the space between all of us <laughs> in this office that I'm a part of. The most important thing in, in doTERRA, it's the space between all the people um, because that's where, that's where the innovation happens. That's where the conflict happens. <laughs> that's where the creativity happens. Uh, there's just so much to say about the importance of, of that. So I love that we got to that um, in this conversation on, on culture. Um, just to me, that's where culture changes is, is right there in that space between. Uh, so a lot, lot to think about for our listeners. You know, I, I would encourage anybody listening to really think about, um, think about your own culture as a, as a person and what it means to you and what's influenced it. Think about your organizational culture, your community's culture, um, and, and how it can be transformed to something uh, better. Uh, one thing I learned in my, uh, you know, my uh, part of my major was anthropology in my undergrad. One thing I learned about culture is that's always changing. Um, and, uh, how can we make sure that our culture changes for the better? So just some things to think about, um, as you're listening to this episode, uh, in addition to all the other, other, uh, nuances that we address, this has been really fascinating and fun to, to get into Seamus. So I appreciate you. Um, what would be your final, uh, your final, uh, statement for, for anybody listening? What's your final thoughts? Well, I'll have to give it to where we started. Uh, uh, my key, if you were to ask me how the man knew your tell, what is the greatest thing in the world? Maku e ki atu, I will tell you, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. It's people, it's people, it's people. It isn't the homes we live in or the cars we drive. It isn't um, any sort of positions or the land that we stand on even. Even though our people had a great connection to the land, we say things like, I am the land and the land is me. We still understood that the most important thing is people. And our um, interactions with them have an impact on that person's mama, on that person's uh, journey in life. Um, and we're here to help one another. We're here having an experience where we literally will be measured by what we leave in our culture. And I'm talking about leaving behind, uh, here's my will and testament and millions of dollars. But literally the people we leave behind is what is most important. Are they better because of their interaction they had with us? Mm-hmm. The question I challenge our leaders here is when you leave, because you will leave, everyone's going to leave one way or another from an organization. There's going to be a question and the question is going to be who will replace them? Who will replace you? And we don't want to be <laughs> saying we don't know because there's no one. It should be we don't know because this person trained so many people and empowered them, didn't abandon them, empowered them to be better than they are. And that's the legacy that we leave behind is, is people. Um, really to step in, to step up and take their community and their families to a better place. Yeah. So, yeah, grateful to share some thoughts of you and meet up with you again, Chris. Thank you for all uh, 
for the invitation. <laughs> and hopefully, I answer some questions. I don't even know, but uh, grateful to be with you. Yeah, that was beautiful, and and likewise, it was. It's been uh, fun catching up, and and I hope you know, you know how much I, I appreciate you, and 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 admire you, and just grateful for the things that I've learned from you, and that I learned from you today, and that I hope that I can keep learning from you uh, in the future. Um, and uh, you've you've graced our our uh, our podcast and our show uh, um, very well. So this has been awesome. A lot of a lot of contributing thought to our institute here today, um, and appreciate it. So thank you, Seamus, and thank you yeah. all for thank you. Yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in, returning listeners, new listeners. Uh, appreciate it, and I hope you learned and, and enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, take care.